You're listening to the Mormon Theories Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Hinckley. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. As you're probably aware, polygamy is a huge topic in Mormonism, especially as it pertains to Joseph Smith's involvement in it. My guest today is Mark Curtis, and he has done some very interesting research into whether or not Joseph Smith actually practiced plural marriage. So Mark is really good at looking at and analyzing the source material. In fact, he even runs his own podcast and website where he does a lot of that, looking at old church history documents and seeing when they were produced and where they came from. His podcast is called Hemlock Knots. And if you look in the show notes at mormontheories.wordpress.com, you'll find links to his website, his podcast, and YouTube channel, and all of that. In our discussion, Mark and I talk about the likelihood of Fanny Alger being one of Joseph Smith's wives. Um, we talk about DNC section 132 and where it comes from. We discuss if Jacob II really is God saying he sometimes commands polygamy, as many people say. And we end by talking about some of the polygamists in the scriptures. It was such an interesting conversation, and I think you'll find it so as well. And I'll say it again, please look at mormontheories.wordpress.com for the show notes so that you can find links and scriptures and stuff that we talked about in the interview if you want to delve deeper into the topic. As you listen, please know that the views of my guests on the podcast do not necessarily reflect my own beliefs or the official doctrine of any denomination, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And with that... Enjoy the show. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm uh, pleased to have you with us today. Um, so for those listening, Mark, is, is uh, he runs the Hemlock Knots podcast and a YouTube channel and website. And um, I'm super excited to get to talk to him today. Um, so, Mark, can you... Can you just kind of give us a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing what you do with the Hemlock Knots? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm 42 years old. I live in Utah, um, Utah County. Um, got two boys. Um, and, you know, I grew up LDS. We were in Texas. My dad was a bishop there. And, you know, growing up was very familiar Mormonism and Latter-day Saint Church and all that stuff. And um, really just throughout my life, you know, being immersed in that stuff. But, you know, it wasn't until about four years ago that I, I started to notice some some strange things. And, you know, it all, actually it all started, ironically, a lot of people don't know this story, but my my stepson, he's now 21 years old at the University of Utah, but he, he came to my wife and I at some point, maybe three, three and a half years ago, and he asked us about all this stuff with Joseph Smith and polygamy. And Fanny Alger and 14 year old girls and all this, you know, he'd read the CES letter, I believe. And so I didn't really have the answers offhand. I was just sort of trying to promote the faith and tell him it's going to be okay. And so I, I did a lot of studying. And actually the, the irony was that initially I sat down to study for several months about polygamy. I'm like, I need to know this stuff better. Like this is a controversial hot topic. Um, you know, it seems like these anti-Mormons know this stuff way better than the Latter-day Saints do, unfortunately. Right. And so I sat down, I, I got a Google doc out and I just started copying and pasting every source I could find on the subject of polygamy with the intention of finding all of the reasons and all of the explanations and all of the insights into Joseph Smith practicing it, why he did, 
where it's revealed in the scriptures that the Lord commanded it. I was, I was going to tell him the faithful side of polygamy. Uh, six months later, I was just, my jaw was starting to drop. And I was just thinking like, I, I don't, I'm not finding very much contemporary firsthand stuff about this. There's a lot of late stuff, but so I just started seeing the totality of the project and just thinking, man, I got to dig deeper. There's got to be something. If our church is basing on the, on some of these ideas, like there has to be, where are people finding it? So I'm picking up, you know, Brian Hill's books and looking for stuff. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of sources. Sure. But the quality of the sources I found were disturbingly bad. You know, some of these were just second, third, fourth hand accounts, people that weren't even there sometimes uh, written decades after the, I mean, just, there wasn't really anything uh, to, to point to that was, that was that definitive, you know, um, yeah. and even DNC 132, I learned about, you know, came about in the early 1850s. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that the saints had access to back when mm-hmm. Joseph was alive. And so, I mean, just lots of questions came up and ironically, I, I started to just see all this and think, you know, people need to see the source material. And so I thought, why don't I just compile, take all my Google docs? You know, I had like 30 something Google docs on different topics. I'm just going to throw them online because I'm tired of sharing these with people and copying po- quotes and sending them to people on Facebook. I'm just going to put it all out there and, and let people, you know, digest it or choke on it. I don't care. It's up to them. Right. Well, that's awesome. That's how the project started. That's cool. So just, just, uh, can you give us just a little quick summary of, of the Hemlock Knots project and, uh, what, what your goal is with that and your purpose? Yeah. I mean, the only goal I have, um, is to just provide a place or a space where people can come and research and they can cut through all the commentary all the blog posts and the endless books out there of people's opinions and, and just get familiar with the source material. I'll put it in a timeline for you, make it really easy. I'll cut it, color code it for you. I'll, I'll link to all the sources so that you don't have to do a lot of the work that I had to do over the last several years. Um, so really it's just trying to pay it forward so that people can shortcut some of their firsthand knowledge of the source material um, so they can do with it, whatever they want, you know, what they do with it is up to them, but I'm going to make it a, a library that anyone can access and, and find some shortcuts to studying, you know, as close as they can get to, to what really happened back then. You know, yeah, we all know the narratives today. Rehashing those doesn't do anyone any good. Right. Right. But there we go. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. I, I've been impressed. I've been on your website and I've seen some of those timelines and there's tons of stuff on there that you've put on there. It's really, really cool. Um, And in fairness, fairness, it's, it's been an open source project. A lot mm -hmm. of people have sent me stuff over the years. And so, you know, it's by no means just me sitting down and researching all of it, but it's really just me copying and pasting from lots of different sources. That's really all it is. I'm a hack. I'm throwing this stuff together. (laughs) I find it elsewhere. I'm not generating a lot of original stuff here. There's very, very, very little commentary from me intentionally. I don't want to put my opinion out there. My opinion doesn't matter. Neither does yours. Right. We're trying to figure out what the historical record says about these topics. And so yeah, opinions can be shared later. For sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I've been curious about the name Hemlock Knots. Can you kind of tell us how you came up with that one or where you got it from? Yeah. So that goes back to a, a quote that's attributed to Joseph Smith. And this is just a couple months before he was killed in 1844. He's on record, and this is January 1844. It's in History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 184 to 185. He's on record of having said, quote, There has been great difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation. 
it has been like splitting hemlock knots with a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Even the saints are slow to understand. I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but we frequently see some of them after suffering all they have for the work of God will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. So the gist of that quote was that he's complaining. It's been like splitting hemlock knots, which hemlock is a type of tree. Hemlock knots are the tough entangled knots inside the wood. So when you're splitting wood and you hit one of these knots, you know, you're going to, you're going to dull your ax. You're going to break something. They're really, really tough knots to split through. Right. And he's saying it's like doing that with a piece of wedged cornbread for the wedge, a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin okay. for a beetle. A beetle is a sledgehammer. So he's, he's kind of drawing the illustration of how hard it is to get some of the saints to comprehend some of these topics. Um, and if they encounter something that's different than what they're used to, man, they fly to pieces like glass and they come apart and they, you know, so the topic was, I mean, the, the name of the site was, was based on that quote from Joseph, you know, and it's, it's a metaphor of sorts. Gotcha. That's cool. I, I did not know that a corn dodger was cornbread. That's very interesting. Yeah, they were usually the shape of a wedge, like a pie. You'd make okay. an entire pie tin of cornbread, and then you'd cut it into slices like you would a pie, and, and that was, you know, corn dodgers. They would serve oh, those. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for letting me know that. Sure. Um, so so yeah, we wanna I wanna t- ask you about some of the things, and you you kind of know the outline here. Um, and so let's just jump into it. Uh, the first first thing I want to ask you about is. Fanny Alger. What, she's uh, someone who uh, was supposedly married to Joseph Smith, uh, probably the first plural wife. Um, and so what, what have you discovered and researched about her and what can you tell us about that story? Yeah, so she's almost always the first on the list of Joseph Smith's alleged wives, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and this is a juicy story. You've got a bombshell, good-looking farm girl who's helping Joseph Smith's family out as a maid and a servant. And, you know, she's 14 years old and there's a charismatic prophet and there's stories about them in a barn together. I mean, it's pretty juicy stuff, right? I mean, people, people love this story. So digging into it, um, you know, what I do a lot of is what I'll do is I'll quantify all of the sources now. And even Brian Hales in his book, he's, he's pinpointing 19 sources. So I have found all 19 of these sources. They all have gone on the Fanny Alger timeline on the Hemlock Knots website. And then we categorize, are they firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand? Are they contemporary? Are they early recollections, late recollections, very late recollections? And, and we break these down on a, a table, a visual graphic to show, okay, this story stems from this much quality of research. Mm-hmm. Now you have to know that there's 17 accounts that are very late accounts over 20 years old, meaning they're latent by 20 years. Nobody mentioned anything until 20 years later, at least 17 of the 19, 89% of those are based on very late accounts. And uh, most of them are third hand plus at least minimum third hand stories being passed down and told. So if we were to look at this as, as far as did Joseph Smith and Fanny Alger have a fling, I mean, people said they did, but what they're doing is they're relaying stories that they heard from others in most cases. Now, there are two early accounts, meaning within 
10 years of it happening, we'll call that early, even though it's not technically early, that are secondhand. There's only two of those. The other 17 are much, much later, much more or less reliable. And so let me talk about these two secondhand accounts that people, people like to point to, right? Anthony Metcalf remembers a third-hand story from Martin Harris that he heard 13 years earlier. So he's recounting Martin Harris's story that he heard 13 years prior to him telling it. Right. So you see, you see what I'm getting at? So yeah. these are the things that I'm finding and I'm like, hold on, there's gotta be better documentation to this. Mm-hmm. And so, and he says, wherein Martin Harris was recounting a secondhand 37 to 42 year old recollection. So Martin Harris told him a 37 to 42 year old story. 13 years later, he tells it and somebody writes it down. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? And so, and so he gives a little bit of detail there. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's one of them, Anthony Metcalf recounting the the Martin Harris type story. And then in uh, Fanny Brewer was another one that was a secondhand account technically. So in 1842, she collaborates with John Bennett to include something in his upcoming book, right? About Mm -hmm. the saints an expose of sorts. So she's recollecting a five-year-old story of spring of 1837 when she moved to Kirtland, what she heard and what she saw and, and all that stuff. And so these are the two best accounts we have of Joseph and Fanny. Now, what do the experts say, right? Yeah. The LDS church says on their website, fragmentary evidence exists, fragmentary evidence that Joseph Smith acted on the angel's first command by marrying a plural wife, Fanny Alger, in Kirtland, Ohio, in the mid-1830s. Little is known about this marriage. How about nothing is known about it? And nothing is known about the conversations between Joseph and Emma regarding Alger. So the church is even admitting we don't have anything to show that this marriage actually happened or when it happened. They're just guessing on dates. They're guessing on whether they were sealed or married or whether it was adultery. Nobody knows. Right. Nobody has any clue about what actually happened here. And if you take the 19 sources about that, you know, you can pit them up against each other and find all kinds of discrepancies. So the question becomes like, okay, which one of these is, is true? Mm-hmm. They can't all be true. Right. And so you have to sort of sift through that and think about it logically. And so even Brian Hales, who's the leading expert on polygamy, he does a lot of good work in his books as far as digging up sources, telling the story. It's the official LDS narrative story. But he's on record of saying Joseph Smith's marriage to Fanny Alger, his first and only plural wife prior to the saints settling in Nauvoo is poorly documented. So it is hard to draw any firm conclusions regarding the details of this relationship. And yet he's listing her as the first wife. I mean, shouldn't that read take her off the list? If you don't have any, if you have no evidence or no, or poorly documented story. I mean, like, Um, He also says that no contemporaneous accounts or records have been located. Also, 15 of the accounts were composed at least 37 years after the incident. 13 of the narratives are secondhand. He's saying secondhand, but it's actually secondhand plus. Many of those are third, even fourth hand, right? Okay. That's minimum secondhand. Mm -hmm. The first published reference to Fanny Alger by her full name occurred in 1881. Whoa. <laughs> Although her first name was ish, was used in an 1875 anti-Mormon book. No, that's from Brian Hales, the church's leading apologist on polygamy, probably, right? 
published a three volume set. So even the historians themselves are admitting that this is a giant nothing burger as far as documenting anything. Yeah. So they're guessing and they're estimating, but that's about it. And so that's just one example. We're building out timelines for all of Joseph Smith's alleged wives to find the quality of the source material behind it so we can show people the full story of, of where these stories are coming from, who they're from, who they're not from. And just so that people can make a, a better guess at, at what may have happened back then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if, it, if I understand what you said correctly, it sounds like much later after the fact, people were saying, okay, Joseph was married to someone or he had a fling with someone in Kirtland. Um, but now now this now the the researchers are just saying like yeah we believe that that's true but we just can't really find any great documentation for it is that kind of what i mean the gist of it is yeah there are a lot of late accounts so they're trying to piece together what may have happened with a bunch yeah. of conflicting testimony and obviously the people who were speaking about these events had had a, had a pretty high motivation to originate polygamy in the 1830s in the mid 1830s right because they were polygamists themselves mm. almost mm. all of them you know, but we have Fanny Alger's brother or cousin. I think his name was John Alger, who was, he went west with the Saints in Utah. Yeah. Nothing from him. He never commented on anything. Oh, really? You know, like his whole time there, there was no, you seem like he would be the one that would tell the story, right? But yeah. so there's just a lot of mystery. There's a lot of mystery involved. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. History is really, really hard to piece together. You know, and I accept that. It's, I don't expect us to have all the answers, but. Mm -hmm. Um, we can at least get rid of some of this guesswork that's on the LDS official narrative, their website, and just be like, hold on, these things are probably not something we should take to the bank and declare definitively, right. unless we have proof. So, yeah, interesting. So, um, was wasn't there something about Oliver Cowdery like accusing yeah. Joseph of doing something with Fanny? Is that true, or like where does that come from? Oh, Is that a late oh account? Boy. Um, no, I mean, that's, that stuff is high council minutes. Okay. Um, in, in 1838, that's actually April 12th, 1838 is when that trial was. Let me run through this real quick because most people believe, okay, Oliver Cowdery accused Joseph Smith of having a fling with Fanny Alger. That's what most people will say happened. And then he got excommunicated for that. Mm -hmm. Um, you dig into the actual story, read the source material. Of course, there's a very, very different story. So Oliver Cowdery never charged Joseph with adultery. Here's what happened. There were nine charges filed against Oliver Cowdery by a guy named Seymour Brunson. Seymour Brunson wrote out nine things that Oliver Cowdery did wrong. Um, persecuting the brethren was the first one. Lawsuits against the brethren. And the second one on the list out of nine of them says, for seeking to destroy the character of Prez Joseph Smith Jr. by falsely insinuating that he was guilty of adultery. So the accusation is that Oliver Cowdery, quote, insinuated. Now, the definition defines insinuated is to introduce gently or into a narrow passage to wind it in, right? Mm -hmm. To introduce by slow, gentle, or artful means. So Seymour Brunson is accusing Oliver Cowdery of not even accusing Joseph, but insinuating that he did it, not even saying that he did it, right? Yeah. You start to see how weak this accusation is. So yeah. here's what happened. Oliver Cowdery gets to answer to those nine charges. 
he only answers four and five, which are largely about selling property that belonged to the church. And Joseph Smith is on record in those meetings as saying that, you know, Joseph Smith Jr. testifies that Oliver Cowdery had been his bosom friend, therefore he entrusted him with many things. He then gave a history respecting the girl business, which people think has to do with Fanny Alger. Again, there's no names mentioned here. The girl business. Whatever happened, Joseph Smith explained, quote unquote, the girl business to 13 people in that room, minimum, and no charges were brought before Joseph. It's safe to say that they were satisfied in regards to whatever happened there because nobody went on to, you know, to make that a big deal. And Oliver Cowdery was given a chance to answer for these charges. Um, he mentioned nothing about it. He had a perfect chance to throw Joseph under the bus and to say that he did this with this little girl. Um, he never did. In fact, he said on all the other points, except for number four and number five, including number two about him committing adultery or insinuating about that, he said he had, quote, differing opinions. And he said, I shall lay them carefully away. And then he goes on later to say, I beg you, sir, to take no view of the foregoing remarks other than my belief on the outward government of this church. So Oliver Cowdery is saying, I don't give a crap about anything on that list. We have difference of opinion about that stuff. But these two, these two charges I'm going to address. So he completely skirted over the Fanny Alger issue, right? right. Um, he also said that he called it a difference of opinion. So if Seymour Brunson is accusing him of insinuating that Joseph Smith was guilty of adultery with his girl, and Oliver Cowdery is like, yeah, I've got a different opinion on that. He's not admitting it, right? He's telling Seymour Brunson, I... I don't see it that way. That's not what happened. Gotcha. And so you get into the details of these things and you read them for yourself. And it's a totally different story than what's summarized in, you know, saints volume, whatever these days. And so that's what I'm trying to do with Hemlock Knots is give people the tools and the resources to just go in and read it for themselves and uh, come away a little bit more intelligent with their arguments. Well, that, that's very interesting. I've, I've always taken a liking to Oliver Cowdery for some reason. Um, and that makes sense. How you explain that? <laughs> he, he, he's a good dude. In fact, yeah. one of his friends later on in life said that he was a modest and reserved man, never spoke ill of anybody and never complained. So Oliver Cowdery was a gentleman. He was polite. Mm -hmm. He was a lawyer. He was put together a gentleman. Um, so I don't, he might not have even had it in his nature to throw someone like Joseph Smith under the bus, even if he did know something, but yeah. um, you think that would be a big deal though, is, is for, the president of the church to be in trouble for something like that. It would have been a much bigger scandal than it really was. And we have to remember that Joseph Smith told the entire high council what happened with the girl business, quote unquote, and they were all pacified. They were like, okay, it's a nothing burger. Let's move on. Yeah. And right. Oliver didn't, didn't contest what Joseph said. Nope. He just seemed nope. to. No, nope. just yeah. let it slide. It was a, a, not a big deal. You know, Seymour Brunson had a problem with it of his insinuation, but nobody else seemed to. Okay, cool. Awesome. So yeah, that helps. Uh, so is there anything else about Fanny Alger that you'd like to mention? I mean, I wish there were. <laughs> I wish there was more stuff. There's just a giant dearth of evidence of any of it. So, yeah. I mean, we take the little scraps that we have and, and piece together a, a narrative that we want to happen largely, yeah. but there's just really not much to it, frankly. Okay. Awesome. Rumor. Yeah. Well, I've seen the timeline on your on your website about Fanny Alger, and it's pretty good. So I encourage everybody to go check that out. Um, okay, how about we talk about DNC section one thirty two? 
you mentioned that just a little bit how it came forth uh quite a bit after the fact um so what have you what have you researched about that i mean most people need to real i mean it's said to have been dictated or copied on the 12th of uh, july 1843 right joseph smith paper shows that uh you know, William Clayton in the presence of Hiram Smith and, and Joseph, there was a revelation given on that day. But in that entry, you'll see that there's nothing listed after that entry. There's a giant gap on the page, um, probably where they were going to write in the stuff later about the revelation. Right. And so, um, and that's just, you know, but let me walk through the timeline real quick. And there's a few things about DNC 132. It was written in Joseph Kingsbury's handwriting, supposedly. And he was never ascribed to Joseph or anything like that. He made a copy of it. He said he got it from Newell K. Whitney. Um, William Law, he actually described a big difference in the document later on in his life. He was interviewed and he said, I was astonished to see in your book, meaning the Doctrine and Covenants from Utah, I was astonished to see in your book that the revelation was such a long document. I remember distinctly that the original given me by Hiram was much shorter. It covered no more than two or three pages of full scrap. So anyway, so William Law is saying, hey, I'm looking at this published version in the Doctrine and Covenants from the 1876 edition. And it wasn't what I remembered. It was much shorter. The original one was super short. Now, the Joseph Smith Papers Project lists eight full pages long of, of just copied, you know, that revelation is eight pages long. So. William Law saying, I remember two pages, that's all, you know. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, is that the same exact thing that he's, that William Law was referring to in the 1840s that he saw, supposedly, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Maybe. It doesn't sound like he's too convinced that's the same thing he saw. And so um, this revelation, the saints didn't know about this revelation until it was in August 28th and 29th. 1852. They're already in Utah for about five years. And then Orson Pratt acknowledged on behalf of the church, the principle of the plurality of wives. He basically just stood up and announced the church is now accepting polygamy. Mm -hmm. There was no common consent. There was no nothing involved, you know, legally to make that binding upon the saints. They just announced that, Hey, we're doing it. The cat's out of the bag. Uh, Brigham Young put Orson Pratt in charge of making that announcement. He stood up later and made a few remarks about that. But And then at that conference is when the revelation known as DNC 132 was first read to the saints. And they presented it as as having been received in 1843. Yep. From Joseph and then, Smith. And the irony is that Brigham Young is also saying that, hey, um, this basically paraphrasing, of course, this thing was in my lockbox on my desk for nine years and uh, nobody saw it except those who should have seen it. So Brigham Young is admitting that he's had this revelation for nine years. And of course the idea is that now it's the time to, to reveal it. Now we can come out of the closet, so to speak, and talk about it openly, right? The cat's out of the bag, quote unquote. Mm. Um, and so, I don't know. I mean, it, it might have taken, taken several years for them to, to finalize some of the wording on that stuff. September 1852, so the next month, DNC 132 was published for the first time in the Deseret News, nine years after Joseph died. Um, and in 1876, about one year before Brigham Young's death, it was finally added to the Doctrine and Covenants new edition. So DNC 132 didn't exist 
really until 1852, as far as the saints were concerned. Hardly anybody knew about it. Um, and then it, re it also redefines some key doctrines. Number one, the new and everlasting covenant. The meaning of that is changed in DNC 132. It also redefines marriage. The old section 101, the Declaration on Marriage, which was accepted by common consent, that was changed in DNC 132. Um, the idea of how to gain exaltation was changed. And then also sins became justifiable and permissible in this revelation, right? Now, the Nauvoo Expositor in 1844 stated that one of the blasphemies being taught was that certain sins could be committed and allowed. And then DNC 132 talks about that, how if you don't, as long as you don't shed innocent blood, you know, or speak against the Holy Ghost, then you can do whatever you want. And it won't be a sin, which is absurd if you think about it, right? Yeah. Um, it's also got a very threatening tone to it. So it's got 10 times the frequency of the phrase, I am the Lord thy God, or some variation of that. It's most revelations, God is not flexing his muscle and threatening people near as much as he does in DNC 132. You know, he is absolutely heavy handed. He's calling Emma Smith names and he's de demeaning her, the elect lady. You know, he's calling her my daughter and elect lady, other revelations. And now he's like threatening her that I will destroy you in the flesh if you don't, you know, it's just silly. Um, invitations and, and stating doctrine that was just more threatening and which which aligns very much with with Brigham Young's style of writing. So there was Enid DeBarth, she's an RLDS person and that, that irks some people, but she did a word analysis on DNC 132 comparing that to Joseph Smith's handwriting yeah. and his writing styles and his prose um, and word syntax links and things like that. And so, and he also compared it to Brigham Young's or she did and she shows that it is way, 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 way closer to Brigham Young's writing style than it ever was Joseph's. Wow. Very and and she, she breaks it down with tables, all the examples. It's very data heavy. I mean, you can go in and look at the words themselves. She's not just speculating with an opinion here. She's actually breaking down the sentences in those revelations and comparing them to other sermons and, and finding a lot of the same phraseology, right? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. So a lot um, of people think that it was Brigham Young and his cohorts that actually wrote that revelation, not Joseph Smith. Yeah. So back to that, um, you you mentioned uh, you mentioned that William Clayton, I guess, had a space or some big gap in his journal. Do you think, like, they, whoever was behind it, was planning to what was it, July twenty third? 1843 they just planned to leave a big blank just in case they wanted to add something yeah. or july 12th i mean yeah so oh. in my in my episode on hemlock knots where we talk about the changes in church history mm -hmm. um changes in lds church history that episode about halfway through it I, I show the document that i'm talking about and there's a big giant gap they skip seven lines before they go on to the rest of the entry it's not even a new entry seven lines later it's a continuation of that same day and so that just shows that whoever wrote that in there was looking to add more detail about that revelation later on, but they never did, mm. which is bizarre, right? Yeah. So what they have written, did they just write that Joseph Smith received a revelation to this day or what did they write in that um, space? I don't have it right in front of me. And let me just pull it up real quick. Give me okay. about 10 seconds. And I can probably read it to you. So yeah. Um, changes in LDS church history. So let's go to, yeah, so slide number 13. So it says 
Wednesday, July 12th, received a revelation in the in the office. Hold on, I gotta make this bigger. It's really tiny. Um, received a revelation in the office in presence of Hiram and William Clayton. So that was actually Willard Richards' handwriting. William Clayton was there supposedly, but oh, okay. And then and then he left seven lines blank, and then he went on to finish later on. So, yeah, I mean, if you're writing in your journal, the day's entries and and all the journal entries before and after for the most part are stacked. Every line is used on this precious paper, and then you've got a big gap in the middle of one of your days. Like, what was he going to draw a picture? Was he going to write later? What you know? Yeah, it's just really bizarre. It's like an ellipsis that's like half the page, you know, right. just blank. So I don't know what he was planning on doing. I just know that the the records that these things are based on are are pretty dodgy. Yeah. So I, I remember a, like a story that I've heard recently, um, where Joseph Smith asks Hiram to take the revelation to Emma, and she throws it in the fire or something like that. You think that was just a made-up story, and where? And if so, like who would have who who said that? Where does that story come from? Do you know? Uh, Brigham Young talked about it at General Conference in Utah several decades later. Um, Emma Smith is actually on record of saying that that was made up out of whole cloth. That whole story. Oh really? So Emma Smith said that's a bunch of baloney. That never happened. Yeah, I think. I mean, so we <laughs> she have, we would have, have remembered. <laughs> well, yeah, she was there. Brigham Young yeah. wasn't. So right. Why why are we taking Brigham Young's word over hers? You know, so. So that's the thing is you've got conflicting stories all throughout LDS history. We have to decide who's lying. They mm-hmm. can't be both telling the truth, right? So Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, do you have any, anything else on 132? Um, I, I know people cherish it and it's part of their canon and their scriptures, and that's okay. You know, I don't take take what you will from it, but just know that the history of it does have some major question marks. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna tell you what to believe about it, but a few of the things out there are just fishy. And so just dig into the history, try to figure out where that thing came from. And, uh, you know, it might raise some questions for you. Awesome. Yeah. Thank it you. doesn't read like any of the other revelations where Joseph dictates it, a scribe just writes it down. It gets published immediately. You know, this one's, they had to sit on it for a while. They had to change it. They had to edit it. You know, it's, it turned out to be nine pages long instead of two pages like William Law remember seeing. So there's all these things. And also, also, you know, um, Joseph Kingsbury, whose handwriting it was, he said that he copied the entire thing in 45 minutes with no errors. There's no editing marks and no errors, no scratches out on on that document that he copied it from Mm -hmm. apparently. So to this day, I'm going to do it one of these days and film it on YouTube, but I dare someone to sit down and write in cursive a copy of DNC 132 in less than 45 minutes. Ready, go. Let's see if you can do it. It would have to be cursive, I would think. <laughs> oh, and it has to be very, very good penmanship too. Yeah. Um, like that, that would resemble a final draft instead of a scratch piece of paper with a, a rough draft on it. Right, yeah. I so, dare someone to do it. 45 minutes, make a copy. <laughs> go ahead. Anyone listening can take up that challenge. Yep. Um, what can you tell me about this Joseph Kingsbury? Like, was why would he have this thing, or who is this guy? Exactly. Um, he was a polygamist. Okay. He loved him some polygamy. You know, he got involved. He was part of the New Order of Things, and most of these guys were that were behind 
you know, these, these revelations being added in 1876, they, they needed to justify it. They needed to put stuff in their scripture that supported the lifestyles they were living. Um, you know, you look at all the other scriptures, Book of Mormon, New Testament, um, even the Old Testament, you'll find that the Lord never once commanded polygamy. I've got an entire list of scriptures on hemlock knots of teachings about polygamy in the scriptures. Two columns. On one column, teachings of monogamy. The other one, teachings of polygamy. And just read through them, and you'll never find one variation of God actually saying that he's commanding or he wants people to do polygamy. What you do have is a bunch of people in the Bible that did polygamy, supposedly, like Abraham or Jacob, right? And so people would use that as, see, God taught polygamy. It says right here that Jacob had four wives, right? But that's very different than the teaching actually being given by God. And if it's such an important principle for exaltation, and it's the only way to get to the special kingdom, why do you think Jesus Christ would never even mention that when he visits the Nephites, ever? He didn't even hint about it, let alone go into any detail about it. Those people were living a Zion society. The 1830 saints were not. Zion had failed. So the Nephites were actually higher ascended than the Utah saints ever were, who were cursed and smitten and driven west and, you know, pushed around by the federal government. Those people in Nephites, I mean, in, in the Nephite people in Bountiful, in the Book of Mormon, they would have qualified for a higher law far more than the Utah saints would have. So why didn't Jesus Christ teach polygamy or exaltation or eternal marriage as, as part of his teachings with the Nephites for two days? Nobody knows. It's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you kind of transition into it, but let's talk a little bit about um, polygamy in the scriptures. You were saying that there's not evidence that anyone was commanded to live polygamy in the scriptures. And so can you expound on that a little bit? Um, I mean, there's a famous Jacob too, which is always a, a hot mess where, where people interpret it as saying, you know, monogamy is the law unless God commands otherwise and, and wants to raise up seed unto him, then he'll command polygamy. But you look at the text and you study it in context, and that's not even close to what it means. Raising up seed unto the Lord is given in First um, Nephi chapter 7 and a bunch of places where he's actually describing what what that actually means raising up seed to the lord the means by which he did that was commanding lehi and his sons to go back to ishmael's family and each get one wife that was how the lord described that he was going to raise up seed in the new land unto him is they had to be obedient to the law of monogamy and so it's, it's completely backwards you know god never once commanded polygamy. Now, if God needed to raise up seed, right, Ryan, I'm going to ask you, what are some scenarios in, in history of the scriptures where he would have needed to raise up seed pretty dang quick? How about Adam and Eve? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve. Two, pe two people on the whole earth. Uh, did God command polygamy? No, he didn't. Adam and Eve's children, you know, they live monogamy except for, you know, Lamech, Lamech, whatever. A couple of generations later, he's the first one that got involved. What about Noah? Noah had three sons. Each of them had one wife. Noah had one wife. Getting out of the ark, there's a big need to multiply and replenish the earth. Am I right? Right. God didn't introduce polygamy then either. How about Lehi going into the wilderness? You know what? Go back to Ishmael, grab four wives apiece. This will help us raise up seed faster. Did that ever happen? No. One wife each. So the Jacob 
two verse 30 principle is just like, okay, suppose it was what the scripture actually meant, which it's not. And that's been proven time and time again by, by analysis. Um, suppose God would do that. When did he? Are you telling me that when 4,000 saints went West to Salt Lake Valley, that's when he needed to pull out polygamy? He already had like 60,000 people within a couple of years in those valleys. How does that trump Noah and Adam and Eve and Lehi and all these other expeditions, brother of Jared, right? Mm. What was he waiting for? <laughs> you know? And so these are logical things that we can wrestle with. And, um, you know, they're right there in the scriptures. Yeah. I will say though, I've heard people um, make the claim that the Jaredites were polygamists based on like the old, the old man marrying a young woman in his old age or something like that. Um, I don't know if you've heard that argument before. Marry them in their old age. I don't think I have. Yeah. I, I personally don't agree with that, but I've heard people say that. And I know there is one, there is one Jaredite King who's mentioned to have many wives um, Replicish. Yeah, but he's not yeah. a very good good he's, dude. He's a scumbag. Yeah. Yeah. So he's uh, another King Noah. So what if we were to have the Super Bowl of Righteousness, where you have team A and team B? And I'm going to tell you the starting lineups of each team, and you tell me which one seems to be more righteous with the Lord. Okay. Right? And you just have to guess based on what you know. Ready? Ready. Team A, Lamech. Nahor, Abraham, Jacob, Esau, Eliphaz, Gideon, Elkanah, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Ahab, Jehoachin, Caleb, Asher, Manasseh, Shaharaim, Abijah, Jehoram, Joash, Zedekiah, Belshazzar, King Noah, King Noah's 12 wicked priests, and Riplakish. That's one team. Okay. Those are the polygamists mentioned in scripture. Okay. Okay. Now, um, on the other team, you have the monogamists. You have Adam, Adam and Eve's children, Cain, Noah, Japheth, Shem, Ham, all of the saved animals on the ark, Terah, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Moses, Lehi, Terah, Laman, Lemuel, Nephi, Sam, Jacob, Zoram, King Benjamin's people, King Lamoni, the 2,500 Nephites at Bountiful, and Emma Smith. Which one would you think would win the contest as being the best team, you know, in the Lord's eyes, right? Yeah, um, I'll confess I didn't know a lot of the names in the first team. Well, the uh, first team, most <laughs> of those, about half of that list of all the unpronounceable ones that I stuttered through, those were the kings in Israel. Oh, really? That, that followed after Saul, David, and Solomon. So yeah, most of those come from a span of about four to 600 years of just following after David. Now, remember the people in the Book of Mormon started to imitate David and Solomon. Right. Yeah. And that did not go very well, right? Yeah. And That's so Jacob idea, too, right? Yeah, they... Jacob too. They called it an abomination. And, and the Lord is saying, or Jacob's saying, the Lord would not suffer you to do as they did in Jerusalem. He's taken you out. He's given you one wife apiece. We're going to live this law finally in the promised land so that he can finally raise up seed unto him, which means they become his sons and daughters through righteousness. It's not just having babies, right? Right. Yeah. So 
that those are some interesting things. So if you break it down into, okay, let's get a list of all of the monogamists in scripture and all of the polygamists, and let's just compare them, right? There's a different caliber of people that the Lord commands monogamy to for the most part, you know, Cain's on the list, but you know, even he had one wife, right? But when you look at all the other ones, um, you know, half the people on the list were condemned for this, you know? And so I try to take a, an objective approach and just look at all of the stuff in scripture. And I went through for probably six or eight months. Let's put all of the, the polygamous stories and the monogamous stories all on one page and let's compare them side by side so people can start to see visually um, to help them in their studies. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen that at least something on your webpage um, listing those people and um, it makes sense to me, but I wonder why. So if, if polygamy is not ordained of God, then why does Abraham end up on the polygamous list? Can you explain that a little bit? Well, Abraham's on both of the lists. With oh, a question okay. mark next to him. And okay. that's because there's different theories about whether or not Abraham was actually a polygamist, right? So there's a story of Hagar in Genesis, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, suppose Abraham was a polygamist and he married Ab- or Hagar as well as Sariah, had kids with each of them, right? So how do we explain that a prophet of God and a holy man then goes out and creates a widow and an orphaned child that almost starved to death in the desert by kicking them out of his land? The law of the gospel states that you're supposed to take care of the poor and to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction and take care of them. How is Abraham kicking some lady out to starve to death with her little boy and then considered a righteous man? So if he was actually a polygamist, then him kicking Hagar out, according to the story, makes him kind of a jerk and one of the worst husbands in the world, right? The dude deserved to be single after that. So, so we have to look at the full story and just ask ourselves these things, you know, um, the book of Mormon, the doctrine and covenant section 101, the book of Mormon, Jacob chapter four, uh, the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 11 or chapter one, one of those two. And then also in the old Testament, in the book of Genesis itself, it says that Abraham only had one child had only son and he was commanded to offer up his only son. So tell me, which one was it? Was it just Isaac? Cause that was when he offered up. So if uh, Hagar's kid Ishmael was one of Abraham's sons, why, why, how do we explain the four other scriptures that say that he only had one son, right? Yeah. So perhaps the book of Genesis is not entirely accurate. Perhaps later on it has been added to, And I find it very interesting that in Jacob chapter two, right? When Jacob is rebuking these people for imitating who they saw as the originators of polygamy, that it's David and Solomon. They're not saying, they're not saying, why are you guys doing what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are doing? No, he's talking about David and Solomon. Why? Because these guys had the brass plates, remember, which was a correct version of the old Testament. Yeah. God, God had them go back and get the brass plates so they could have an accurate history to pass down to their people. Right. I would have, I would have, if I was trying to get away with polygamy and I needed a justification, I would have used Abraham or Isaac, not David and Solomon. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. but for some, whatever reason, that wasn't who they were trying to imitate. So I believe personally that the story in Genesis could have been tampered with 
can I prove it? No, but I'm studying the, the, the history of the Old Testament, where those scrolls came from. Uh, lots of different authors contributed to the five books of Moses yeah. um, is what it looks like, at least as far as, you know, writing styles and comparisons. But, you know, so there's all of that stuff as well. And so, um, you know, I, I just like to dive deep, answer the hard questions, try to figure it out by analysis as well as faith. And um, you'll, you'll find some very interesting things if you stop and actually read it. Yeah, I... I want to kind of go back to something you were just saying, because I'd never thought of this before. Um, so I heard, I don't know where I heard this recently, but something about like, like you said, the brass plates were more accurate. Um, but the, the people in Lehi's day were like Deuteronomists or something. And they were like, had their own version of the Torah or the scriptures. And so I wonder like you were saying, were these Deuteronomists trying to justify polygamy and they wrote it into Genesis. So maybe Abraham really wasn't a polygamist. Um, maybe Jacob wasn't a polygamist. Is that a possibility? Um, yeah, I don't know the history well enough to, to say definitively, but I've heard that theory before mm-hmm. that the Deuteronomists got a hold of the law and they corrupted it. And so you have to remember that this, the Pharisees and a lot of these religious leaders, when Jesus came around, in his time in the new Testament, they were claiming the seed of Abraham. Right. And Jesus is like, I don't, I don't care. I'll raise up seed of Abraham from these rocks or whatever. So everybody was bragging about being the seed of Abraham because it gave them political power. It gave them monetary power. There were blessings attached to that certain lands attached to it. Right. It was, it was the cool thing to do to be one of the seed of Abraham. right? Right. And so we have to remember that, you know, a lot of the kings that were in Jerusalem at the time were not the seed of Abraham. Many of them, including Herod, were Edomites who didn't even, they would come from Esau, not Jacob, right? So there was a major power struggle and they had lineages that were kings in Jerusalem that were had nothing to do with Abraham's lineage. And so you better believe there were probably people trying to claim to be Abraham's seed and it might've had a need for them to go back and to rewrite history and change it a little bit. Oh, Abraham actually had two sons. This one was born first. So he gets the land. Even today, you look at the, the land surrounding greater Jerusalem, they're still warring over it. And it's, yeah. it's known largely as the, the seed of Abraham versus the seed of, I mean, the seed of Isaac versus the seed of Ishmael. Right. Right. And they're war, they're warring it out. They're fighting over it. Who gets the land? I mean, it's a giant mess. And so you better believe people were trying to justify their claims throughout history to bolster that up, you know? Yeah, for sure. That is so interesting. I've, wow, never considered that before. Very cool. It's some, something we're thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, well, yeah, I think we've well, kind of covered. Before Sorry, we go, go on though. Yeah. Remember how many women, if you don't think this ever happens where people claim that they had a baby from somebody else who was a prophet of God, mm-hmm. How about the eight or nine people who claim to have children through Joseph Smith that was later proven false through DNA testing? Yeah. They went back and tried to rewrite history and put themselves in as one of his wives that bore children from Joseph. Why? Because there were spiritual blessings and prestige attached to it. Right. So if we, if we don't think this stuff ever happens, look at our own church history in the last 200 years. And we've got an example of, I think at least eight women who did the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. They tried to lie their way, or maybe they were deceived. If someone doesn't know who 
who the father is that says something about their character usually anyway i can't remember who <laughs> who conceived me that night well how many partners did you have so if you can't keep it straight who who actually impregnated you a it says something about who you are probably in regards to the law of chastity or whatever but but also it just goes to show that women had a very high incentive to tell people that they were carrying the child of joseph yeah because they, they had some popularity attached to it right yeah. prestigious club for sure too bad they were all lying right so yeah and it's cool that they've been able to test those um but there are some that they can't test is what i've heard because there's some they can't test yeah yeah interesting well yeah i mean what you've been saying about maybe the the utah the utah polygamist trying to rewrite some of the history of joseph smith potentially if that's true kind of potentially parallels the what we were just talking about in the old testament too and it's just kind of it's interesting to find those parallels yeah Yeah, those old those old testament scrolls were handed down in the king's courts largely they were kept by royalty and Mm -hmm. important people politically um yeah (laughs) they weren't not everybody had a copy of the bible right back in those those thousands of years ago but they were kept in synagogues they were kept in I mean, Lehi had to go get the brass plates out of the, the treasury. But they keep the money. It wasn't even like the library. It was like the treasury. Like, you know, so, I mean, they didn't have a lot of copies out there back then. You know, the copies were rare and they could, they could easily rewrite a new scroll and change a few things and make copies of that one and just messy. Yeah. Can I prove that any of this happened? No, but we have to look at these stories and figure out, okay, if they're contradictory and they're lying, they say different things at different times. Like, what do we do with that, right? Mm-hmm. Which verse do we believe in Genesis? That a- Abraham only had one son? Or that he also bare, you know, that he yeah. also imp- impregnated Hagar and had a second son? That's true. Like, you, which, which one? You can't you have choose both. one, I guess, right? Yeah. And one is substantiated five times in the scriptures. The other one is only mentioned once. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Abraham only having five kids. I mean, only having one kid, that's that's mentioned five times in the scriptures. Yeah. In the mouth of five witnesses, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. we just have to look at the totality of, of what's out there and just start being detectives as far as helping us figure out some of these yeah. tough, to, tough to answer questions. Yeah. So do you know, um, have you looked into the Joseph Smith translation to see if he um, kind of lessened the polygamy narrative in genesis at all or what have you seen no. anything there in genesis he hasn't no admittedly the js joseph smith translation is not complete it's not finished right and so let me go try to find so there were three scriptures that were changed about david and solomon mm-hmm. where they look like good dudes you know and then joseph smith through the jst you know is said to have changed those verses where it actually makes them not good, not right with the Lord for what they did, which is the opposite, right? So if anything, the Joseph Smith translation, which should have brought polygamy back from the dawn of time, you would think if it's really what the the Utah Brighamite saints were teaching, that this is all goes back to Adam, you know, Jesus was a polygamist, you know, a bunch of people were teaching these things. So why didn't he bring any of that stuff back? I don't know. In fact, he actually went the opposite direction and took polygamists in the scriptures like David and Solomon. And instead of them being called righteous for their lifestyle, he changed it to make them 
wicked. Yeah. For the life. So, I mean, Joseph was adamantly against polygamy. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Going back to those sources, you know, the firsthand contemporary accounts, we've got seven or eight of them, maybe even more where, oh, that's just from Joseph. You got Hiram saying another dozen contemporary firsthand accounts where they're condemning polygamy. They're out excommunicating people in the church in the 1843, 1844, who are out practicing and teaching polygamy. They're putting their money where their mouth is, right? They are excommunicating people who are out participating in this stuff. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's... If you want the quality of the sources to trump, you have to look at all of the statements and realize that the contemporary stuff we have from Joseph and Hiram is always against polygamy. Always. Yeah. Interesting. Do you know if they excommunicated anyone practicing plural marriage before the, the July 1843 revelation was supposed to have been received? Because it seems weird that they would excommunicate someone for it and then get a revelation to actually practice that thing. Um, what do you know about that? Yeah, so in February 1844, so this is, um, <laughs> this is like eight months after the revelation was given, DNC 132, ready? Uh-huh. Hiram Brown is excommunicated on February 1st, 1844. Hiram Brown is excommunicated for, quote, preaching polygamy and other false and corrupt doctrines. He is cut off from the church for his iniquity. And that was published in the Times and Seasons and signed by Joseph and Hiram Smith. So everybody knew about it. (laughs) Everybody knew about it. You know? And so were they lying? Some people say, well, Joseph and Hiram are just lying. Well, okay, great. You know, the founder of our church is a chronic liar and an adulterer. Cool. Um, So we just have to look at that and just say, look, the saints knew what the law was from God. They had it in their scriptures. They had it published in the Times and Seasons constantly. You know, Brigham Young, ironically, if you were to ask who claimed to have first received the doctrine of polygamy, you know, the answer is Brigham Young. Oh, really? Brigham Young claimed it. He said, while we were in England in 1839 and 1840, I think the Lord manifested to me by vision and his spirit things concerning polygamy that I did not then understand. I never opened my mouth to anyone concerning them until I returned to Nauvoo. Joseph had never mentioned this. There had never been a thought of it in the church that I ever knew anything about at the time, but I had this for myself and I kept it to myself. And when I returned home and Joseph revealed those things to me, then I understood the reflections that were upon my mind while I was in England. But this communication with Joseph on the subject was not until after I had told him what I understood. This was in 1841. The revelation was given in 1843, but the doctrine was revealed before this. So that's Brigham Young bragging that he was the first one to receive the revelation in 1874, having never heard anything from Joseph Smith about it. Um, Lorenzo Snow also says that when he was a missionary in England, he received a revelation stating that polygamy was from God, essentially, not in those exact words, but he claimed it as well. So of all the people who claim it, Lorenzo Snow, Brigham Young are on record of saying it started with me. I was the first one to receive this revelation. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it was like three or four years before. Let them claim it. Let them own it. They themselves said they were the first ones. Yeah. Yeah. So about two years before, you know, two or three years before the revelation came. So see what I'm saying? And a lot of those guys came back from England with, with some mistresses, right? Some were pregnant. 
and oh, yeah. uh, plural oh. wives. I mean, it started in England. They were they were participating in that over there. But when it got back to Nauvoo, that's when it really blew up. There were a lot of Cochranite converts, and and people were starting to learn the secret priesthood and the secret doctrine of polygamy and exaltation. It was being taught in in private places. You know, most often in Brigham Young's home. You know, in private. So. It just caught fire and it became a thing. And, and obviously people didn't want to be in trouble for it. So what do you do? You try to justify it. You try to make it legal, right? Yeah. So, and I guess Joseph and Hiram were the ones to, to pin the tail on the donkey. Yeah. Wow. So interesting. Well, I think it's worth thinking about at least, right? So, yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know what, I don't know the truth about, you know, if Joseph was or wasn't, I can tell you this though. I, I didn't think that Joseph was a polygamist all growing up until like I went on my mission. Like I had no idea. I thought it was, I thought it was just Brigham Young um, and on. And so, you know, me personally, if, if Joseph Smith turns out not to be a polygamist, I, I'm not going to be sh- that shaken up because I originally didn't think he was, you know? And, it, and I honestly don't care if he was or wasn't. It, it makes yeah. no difference to me. I seriously don't care. I lean towards the idea that he probably wasn't because the lack of firsthand contemporary evidence. Yeah. However, um, if something came out or I was convinced that he was one, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, scripturally, none of that changes. It's still not supported in the scripture outside of DNC 132. Yeah. You can't change that, you know? Right. So whether or not Joseph did it, if Joseph was a polygamist, shame on him. He effed up big time and he was a fallen prophet or he needed to repent or something. You know, you, you attach what the meaning is. Um, so I don't worship Joseph Smith. He was just a dude. He did some great things. I think, I think he tried really hard to establish, you know, some better understanding about the gospel, but he wasn't perfect. He was reamed up and down in the DNC and rebuked constantly by the Lord. He had his fair share of weaknesses. Um, do I have proof that polygamy and pedophilia was, was one of them? No, not nothing that I would, I believe in innocent till proven guilty. And just not enough evidence to really convince me that that's the way he was. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, cool. Thanks, Mark. I think we've covered everything. Um, is there any last, last words you'd like to say before we end? No, I mean the gist of it, and this is the way my brain works and, and, and people are starting to adopt this method of study where you just get everything out on the table and sort through it. Don't worry about what general authorities say about it. Don't worry about what your bishop says about it. Don't worry about what your neighbor says about it or your parents told you about it growing up. Get in there and learn the stuff for yourself and let God teach you. If that's who you want to come close to, you want to learn his ways, let God teach you. Let the scriptures speak for themselves, right? And get rid of all of the onion layers of interpretation and endless commentary and play-by-play. You don't need those voices in your head. Don't even believe what I said to you today. My opinion is garbage. So is yours, Ryan. Nothing personal. <laughs> Thank but you. But <laughs> they're, they're just opinions. And if you want yeah. the truth, get rid of the opinions and just mm-hmm. go after the source material yourself. And that's really what Hemlock Knots is about. And, and that's, that's my ministry. I'm trying to help people to understand that you can learn a lot by getting rid of the talking heads in your ear and, and just studying yourself. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think that's a great, a great way to go about learning new things. So thank you so much. Um, can you just quickly tell everyone listening where they can find your website and your YouTube channel and all that? 
Sure, we've got a Facebook page, a Facebook group where all these conversations are happening every day. Um, just look for Hemlock Knots and look up for Hemlock Knots on YouTube as well, and then hemlockknots.com. Um, we do videos maybe once a month, a month or so, maybe more often about church history. We show documents, we get into the weeds, we get into the nitty gritty and talk about some of the things that are less, less understood and less discussed. I mean, that's our jam, you know. Um, we don't like to cover the obvious on that show. And we do a lot of interviews with other people who, who have interesting takes on things, right? Kind of like you. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Yep, thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, of course. Okay.